From Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sharino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And Joanna, just you and me running the show today. Just us. Adam Adam is off doing business stuff. Who knows where? I mean, we know where. We know actually. where. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but you know, he's uh, he's got meetings and and we we got uh we got the show so uh let's let's start with this uh what uh, lately have you had to drink that you've been excited by or at least interested in hmm uh so my in-laws actually visited this past weekend um from Toronto where they're from after you know not seeing them for 16 months so that was mm. very nice very joyous we went to a bunch of our local spots um to to show them around we revisited brandy library um which i've spoken Ah. about before (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i did a calvados tasting there oh which was really cool i i don't know much i don't know much about brandy to begin with but i felt Mm -hmm. like you know i was there wanted to check it out i feel like i've also been watching a lot of period dramas uh in you know england and they drink a lot of brandy yes many large (laughs) snifters full by fireplaces Uh, looks so great so so i did that and that was really great yeah i i covetous is a category which like i don't know this would be actually i'd be curious your thoughts on this so there are these categories in beverage alcohol for me and and even in sort of broader beverage where i'm like I bet I could end up really far down a rabbit hole here, but I just don't like I have yet to have like I've never been to like Normandy, you know, mm-hmm. kind of in northwestern France where Covados is made. So I haven't had that firsthand experience of like seeing seeing it and tasting it. And I've tried some Covados, some some I, I like it. Um, mm-hmm. but but it's not it's not I've not I know that there's that potential. And and I think like for me, other things that kind of fall into that category are like like sake for sure. Mm-hmm. Like I enjoy it. But I I will freely admit that my knowledge of it is like pretty cursory, even mm-hmm. though I know there's an incredible uh, amount of it. And then like the other one, which is non-alcoholic, which Adam has given me shit for in the past, is tea, which oh. I also find to be deeply fascinating. But again, just like I only have so much time and right, right. Um, so much, I don't know, brain, yeah, space. brain space. There's not a lot yeah. of it in there. <laughs> Are are there things like that for you that you're like, I bet you I could get into this, but just like for whatever reason, either it's intimidating or you just don't have the time, like you haven't quite dove into? Honestly, (laughs) wine. Okay, fair. (laughs) Don't judge me. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I just think that is is one thing, one category specifically, they're just like, it seems completely endless. And that is true. It's just like, I can scratch the surface. But there's just so much to learn about and to know. So I feel like wine for sure for I mean, those those other ones as well, I wouldn't consider myself an expert in sake or or even tea <laughs> or brandy, mm-hmm. clearly. Um, but yeah, I think any specific category, even even just like spirits in general, like sp- specific spirits like whiskey mm-hmm. or, um, te- I mean, maybe tequila to a lesser extent. But but yeah, I just feel like there's there's so much to know in um, in those particular ones. Yes, for sure. Well, I think something like Cavados that's interesting is like you have it very much rooted in a place. Mm-hmm. Like some of the spirits, you know, like whiskey, I mean, right. is obviously a much larger category. And also, you know, there are many different styles, many different places, and you can make whiskey anywhere. And like you can make an apple or pear brandy, I suppose, anywhere that you grow apples or pears. But, you know, Cavados is really tied to a specific place. So it kind of is, in a way, it feels more like, to me, that's why I guess like it feels both more like self-contained. Mm-hmm. I, you don't have to learn about 
you know, the 50 different countries that make Kavados, but you do have to kind of like, if you want to know about it, which I, as I said, I don't really, mm-hmm. you really have to dive into like, I don't know, different types of tree, apple trees and like right. what, you know, aging requirements and blah, blah, blah. And like, I don't doubt that it's super interesting and that a different in a different life, maybe that's a thing that I'm even more passionate about, but <laughs> I just also like look at it. I'm like, let's just not, because <laughs> I'm not going to go down that particular rabbit hole. Cause it's also kind of like, I mean, it's I'm sure delicious and those, those shade at those who make and enjoy Cavados, but it's also like a very small part of the drinks world. And so mm-hmm. being a Cavados expert to me is like uh, other things I'd rather be an expert yeah. on or, or at least more knowledgeable about. Yeah, for sure. Um, what about you, Zach? What have you been drinking? So I had, so I have to tell a little bit of a story. I apologize. Mm-hmm. I really do feel like I'm turning into Adam on this episode, but it's all right. <laughs> Someone has um, to take your place, right? I guess so. <laughs> so um, I, uh, this last weekend, had a, a get together at my dad's house um, that we've held every, well, it was functionally supposed to be every other year. Um, but obviously we didn't do it last year because of um, the pandemic. And so we pushed it back to this year and it, it all kind of, the, the genesis of it is a trip I took with my dad to Walla Walla um, about seven years ago now. Mm-hmm. And while we were there, we were uh, having dinner at a restaurant in Walla Walla and Walla Walla is a relatively small town. And mm-hmm. um, you know, during the during, you know, you, you just, you run into a lot of wine people there because that's a lot of the industry there. And so we were having, my dad and I were having dinner and at the table next to us was a winemaker who I know a little bit and he had a guest with him. And so we were very kind of like, oh, that's interesting. You know, whatever. I said, hi. And then we know, I noticed that the guest had brought, um, like had like a single, basically like a, sh- a shipping box for one bottle of wine. And he mm-hmm. like pulled this bottle of wine out of like the container and everything. And I was like, huh, okay, well, this is more interesting to me because like, you know, this person has obviously like brought this wine from somewhere else mm-hmm. and has brought this wine to have dinner with a winemaker. So like <laughs> there there probably is a kind of special bottle of wine. And so I kind of, you know, was keeping an eye and just looking. I was like, I don't recognize the label or anything. It's a French wine, but that's about all I can tell because I'm trying not to be too, you know, kind of uh, in their business. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, mm-hmm. go over and talk a little more and just sort of ask. And I was like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, uh, what is this? What is this wine you brought? And the the guy who was joining the the winemaker I knew was like oh well you know this is a wine I make um, in the Languedoc and um, I wanted to it's a the other winemaker makes a lot of Syrah and he's like I want him to try my Syrah and I was like oh that's very cool and he's like do you want to try it and I was like sure you know do you mind if I grab a little bit that's for my so dad nice. too and so Aww. yeah so he poured <laughs> us a little bit of the wine and we took it over and you know. I, I mean, I didn't know anything about it. I'd never seen the label before. And and my dad and I were both very struck by the wine and really mm-hmm. enjoyed it. And so um, I think my dad a little more so than me, but that's cool. And my dad <laughs> kind of became mildly obsessed with this wine, um, which is very hard to find in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, which I guess explains probably why the winemaker shipped it from um, – I don't know if it was shipped from France, I guess, but from somewhere, not in Washington, for sure. And he, my dad, eventually, uh, about a year and a half later, was in was in that part of France and decided to go buy some of the wine uh, and bring it back with him. And he did. And so we now every, he bought, I think, four bottles. Uh, so this was the third of four, I suppose, of these dinners centered sort of nominally around this wine, but inevitably much other wine comes along with it too. you know, everyone brings some wine and it's a very festive, fun kind of, you know, afternoon, whatever meal, luncheon, supper, dinner. I don't know there. Everyone's got a different word for a meal you eat at three o'clock. It's like the last <laughs> meal of the day or four o'clock or whatever. Um, and so it was really cool because we had at the, in this example, we had three different um, 
French Syrahs. So we had this uh, wine, uh, it's called Clos de Truffier mm-hmm. from the Languedoc. We had a wine from Hermitage uh, mm-hmm. from Paul Jabalain, which is like a, you know, one of the preeminent uh, appellations in the Northern Rhone. And then a wine from um, Hervé Suha, which is like a much more um, kind of a, I mean, I think you would, it would fall under the sort of natural wine heading, but very, mm-hmm. but not particularly funky, just kind of brighter and more fresh, emphasizing kind of not aimed at, you know, decades of aging per se, mm-hmm. although this one was t- 2015 and still quite lively. So I'm mm-hmm. sure it would age quite well. And it was really cool. I mean, I love Syrah. It's one of my favorite varieties. Mm-hmm. And um, it- it's always fun to see it. In this case, you know, three different expressions from three different parts of, you know, of France, although, you know, all kind of the southern-ish portion of the country. Uh, and that was really cool. And it was just, you know, it's like I, I hadn't had a, like, in a while since the pandemic, you know, this kind of gathering of a bunch of people, some family and some friends who are really into wine, that was really kind of wine centric. You know, mm-hmm. we've had other gatherings, you know, a few birthday parties and such, but nothing quite like this. And it was just like, oh, yeah, you know, this is a lot of fun. So it was a it was a lovely afternoon, evening. And fortunately, I didn't have to drive myself anyway. So <laughs> it was even better. And do you do like a specific meal for these dinners? Um, or? So it depends. I mean, my, we've done different things in the past. This this year, the centerpiece was actually some brisket that my dad, right. um, along with my cousin, who's something of a of an accomplished uh, author of um, some books about cooking meat, uh, brisket, and otherwise. Uh, and so they they worked on it together, which was cool because they got up at three in the morning to like <laughs> yeah. you know start the pro- or, or you know s- switch something in the process. I don't know, put the meat in the oven from the smoker or something. Mm-hmm. I, I just showed up and ate it. It nice. was delicious. <laughs> Very, very good, and and a and a great kind of flavorful, interesting meat that yet didn't like dominate. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of brisket's pretty, you know, plays nice with a lot of things, including obviously syrah. Oh, that sounds so nice. It was, it was indeed. All right, so let's let's talk a little bit about what our topic for today, which you know, you and I, Joanna, were talking a little bit about this this thing that is. I think still kind of uncertain about how this last 16 months or so is going to have, has affected us and will continue to affect us. And Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, I'm talking specifically in this kind of drink space, of course. And that is this idea that I think a lot of people during the pandemic, specifically as uh, relates to their drinking were by dint of being mostly stuck at home and, and not afforded their, some of their usual options had to put, take themselves out of their own comfort zone. I mean, I think we, we think about this a lot with people who really kind of experimented for the first time with making drinks at home, you know, mm-hmm. cocktails. Um, sometimes it was about exploring things in the world of beer or wine or, or spirits um, that they were unfamiliar with. And I think, you know, I think it's fair to say that both you and I see going out of one's comfort zone as a good thing, generally. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to start th- with this question for you, Joanna, which is like, how how do you personally push yourself out of your drinks comfort zone? I mean, do you and and how do you do that? Yeah, I guess. Well, I suppose. I guess something to to share first is that I I feel like I well there are certain things that I order or prefer or drinks that I I know that I like. So I guess that can be considered my comfort zone. But I but I'm never. I feel like I'm never reluctant to really get outside of that or to order outside of that. So for me, it's really about trying things that I've never had before. And, and I always have a willingness to do that, I suppose. So it's, it doesn't feel like I'm ripping myself out of my comfort zone to try new things. But I would say that that's essentially how I do it, I I guess, um, is 
though I, though there's a caveat there, there are some things that I know I don't care for or don't love mm. so much. Um, an example of this would be IPAs. Please don't, uh-huh. at, don't uh-huh. at me. <laughs> um, or like <laughs> bitter or hop forward beers that I know I don't love, but I've been trying to have more of those recently to, to find, maybe find ones that I do. And I do mm-hmm. like hazy IPAs. I know they're not quite the same, but I like them more. And, sure. and also to better understand beer culture and yeah. something that's happening in beer culture right now and this hype around this specific thing. So, so I think it's like part of it is trying things that I've never had before and just, you know, the just discovery of what mm-hmm. I like and what I don't like. And the other thing is maybe revisiting things that I haven't had great experiences with in the past to see if something hasn't changed. Yeah. And I think you really hit on something that's important for me in this conversation, which mm-hmm. is like, I think there is a fundamental difference between something you've tried and said, you know what, I don't like this, right? You know, I try, tried a, a lot of different IPAs and they just don't, they don't work for you. The, mm-hmm. the flavor profile isn't what you're looking for. And that's one thing. But I think there's this other part of the comfort zone, which is like, or, or getting out of one's comfort zone, which is a sort of almost speaks to kind of who you are in the world, who you are as a person. And mm-hmm. it's like, is something unfamiliar? Do you view that as, does someone view that as skeptically as something that could be, that is likely bad right. or excitedly as something that is likely good? And, and I suspect that you and I both generally have that disposition. And, and I don't know if that's a thing that, that, in your life first expressed itself in other categories. I mean, I think for me, I was always a really adventurous eater. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of then as a, as a child sort of translated into being an adventurous drinker for better or worse as an adult. <laughs> um, but I think that this is a thing where, you know, I, I know we have listeners out there who feel, you know, overwhelmed by the idea of all the choices that are out there. But I do think it's sort of an attitudinal position, whether you look at, an unfamiliar wine or, or beer or spirit or cocktail or whatever as likely to be something interesting that you can at a minimum learn from or likely something scary. And and again, this is not meant to be judgmental. I mean, again, I think you and I come in at, you know, specific, uh, you know, we have our own sort of both dispositions and opinions about this, mm-hmm. but I think it's totally reasonable to look at a lot of what's out there with some skepticism because, you know, sadly there are a lot of not great, you know, products mm-hmm. that exist. And sometimes you can get disappointed. And if you don't know how to kind of, <clears throat> I guess, either steer yourself away from those or deal with it, if you do get something disappointing, that that's, that's one piece. But, you know, I think part of what prompted this conversation too, for us was, was this sort of like, I like to try things out at home. Like I like to play around with cocktails. We've talked a couple times in mm-hmm. recent episodes about like my kind of like paper plane riffing, which I guess <laughs> is riffing on a riff because the paper plane is really a last word riff. But um, to me, I'm okay with making something and being like, well, it's not very good. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I may or may not drink it, like depending on how, right. stakes, how much I feel like. Yeah. Um, but I think like this is something that I want to communicate and then I have I want to get your thoughts. I think it's also sometimes like people do not realize like, man, I built cocktail programs before or cocktail lists. And like when you're designing a new cocktail, you go through... I don't know, dozens of iterations before you get it right. I mean, sometimes you nail it on the first couple of tries Mm because you just kind of like have a sense for what's going to work. But if you're trying to do something that really doesn't have, you you don't know the established framework for, like, of course, you got to figure out proportions. And one of the cool things and yet scary things about cocktails, and it's true, I think, in blending wine too, like 
it is not always a simple linear thing, right? Like you, you think you can think that adding a tiny bit more of one ingredient won't, will just kind of nudge the cocktail. And sometimes it does. And sometimes it sends it spiraling out of control. And that's kind of the fun of it. And again, when you're doing this professionally at a bar, like you can usually, you know, you have budget for, you know, the stuff that goes down the drain, Mm -hmm. but I don't know, like, this is kind of rambly. I apologize, Joanna, but I want to, I want your thought, like, you well, know, it's so funny, you... actually, because I really, ra- after you told us about riffing on the paper plane uh-huh. and what you were trying and what you were tr- like hoping to do, I, it really racked my, I really racked my brain trying to come up with other suggestions for you after you mentioned blue curacao. And I just like, I couldn't, I, I really needed to like, I wanted to sit down and actually try things to see, but I couldn't say like, oh, would this, would this work with the tequila and the, I can't remember what you had in there already. Chinar. Right. Uh, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I really sort of don't know what would, mm-hmm. how this would taste. And, and I, I was just like so inspired by, <laughs> by what you were doing and it made me really want to do it myself. Yeah. Well, and I think that for me, like, or I think that one of the things that I would say in general is that it's not that it's not hard. I mean, in the sense that some of my comfort with this is having been a bartender. Right. And so mm-hmm. you, you just kind of go, well, I've done, you know, I've done this before and you kind of develop, I think for me, what it, what it is, is like, I just sort of in, innately have a, or, or, you know, learned through years of doing the job, you know, a decent sense for kind of like what most of the ingredients in my let's say home bar, for example, um, or, you know, my bar when I was bartending, you know, what most of the ingredients taste like. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think if people, if you cook at home, you kind of, I think, develop a similar, you know, assuming you're not, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being someone who strictly follows recipes, but mm-hmm. it is why like learning to improvise in the kitchen and it, behind the bar, are, I think, useful skills. Like if you don't learn kind of how to go off the beaten path a little bit or like off the map, um, then you don't really you can't create, right? You can replicate, mm-hmm. which is super cool. And like some dishes have to be, some cocktails have to be exactly right to taste good, as I said before. Mm-hmm. But I think it's this, you know, it comes back to this whole thing of being unfamiliar or sorry, um, comfortable with the unfamiliar mm-hmm. and and sort of willing to take those risks. And, and I don't know, again, maybe it's a dispositional thing, but I think it's also a little bit of a learned practice thing where you say like, okay, I can start with maybe you know, like I encourage people to do this when they ask me about making cocktails at home. It's like, start with the ingredient you like most, right? So if it's, you know, rye whiskey or, you know, reposado tequila Mm -hmm. or gin or whatever your thing, and just try mixing it with stuff, you know, like (laughs) you can start with familiar things. I mean, all of those have their kind of classic pairing partners, which are really straightforward. Um, And then think about like, okay, well, if uh, my, you know, if my rye whiskey really likes you know, other sort of bitter liqueurs. Well, there's a whole realm of them that go from, you know, the various Amari through to vermouths of various sorts mm-hmm. into actual bitters themselves. Like there's a, there, you know, it's kind of this whole, you know, you kind of and you find yourself in this kind of section of a, of your home bar. If yours is, is your, if yours is expansive as mine kind of is, um, or even if it's a small home bar, like you, you're going to probably have a few ingredients to play around with. Mm. And the other, the other thing to think about is like, it's totally cool to like steal from the bars around you. I mean, not literally steal <laughs> um, things, but I mean, ideas, right? Ideas, like, yeah. you know, um, ask, I, I, I always would ask people I worked with or, or knew who were, I think more skilled than me, like, what do you think would go with this? And like, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying walk into a busy cocktail bar on a Saturday night and try and pigeonhole the the bartenders, but you know, 
you're in there on a Tuesday night and it's kind of slow. Like I would say, Hey, you know, I really like, you know, I really like Ripsado tequila. What are like, you know, but I don't want a margarita, right? I don't want a Paloma. I want Mm -hmm. something a little different. And, you know, again, this is comes back to kind of talking, you know, just kind of engaging with this exploration and discovery piece, but like, ask them to make you something, but also maybe ask them to talk you through their logic because a good bartender should be able to give you like some idea why they're doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I mean, I think about this and what I wanted to say earlier is like, so I think we both have, as you mentioned, this disposition to explore and try new things. And, and it's, it's not even, I think there's like a skepticism about the unknown, but then there's also, and maybe this isn't the right word for it, but like an unwillingness Yeah, You know, and I feel like when I think of people like my parents who they order the same thing no matter where we are or the conversation we had in a different episode about people going back to bars and ordering off of the cocktail menu Mm -hmm. versus, you know, leaving it to the bar and ordering a specialty cocktail um, versus ordering something that they know already. Um, I think of my parents in those moments, too, where I'm like, oh, they're (laughs) that's not that's not the case for them. And I. And it's funny because I grew up trying everything. It was always it, with food, of course, a very adventurous, like trying whatever. Um, and it's certainly translated to drinks for me. But I, I just think there's like, yeah, it's just an unwillingness or just like why you know what you like and why why try something else. Yeah. But that's interesting to me because I think with food, that mindset, though not mine, makes a certain kind of sense because most of us are exposed to some diversity of foods as a child, you know, probably whether it's at our parents, um, you know, whether they're making things, whether we're getting food, you know, in restaurants or takeout or whatever, or at some point in our lives, we're probably having dinner at other people's houses. We're probably trying some other new things. Like I'm sure there are people who go through their lives trying very few different foods until they're adults, but most of us have some exposure and I think increasingly more and more to a range of cuisines and ingredients and things like that. But, you know, drinking is weird in this country, right? You know, we're not, you know, I don't know if your parents introduced you to drinking. My parents did a little bit, Mm -hmm. but a lot of my exploration of drinking came after I was out on my own. Mm -hmm. Um, Because at the time, especially my parents were kind of like, yeah, they were predictable-ish drinkers. I mean, not like the same exact drink, Mm -hmm. but, but it was just like, you know, and to some extent, they still are. I mean, my mother in particular, but but also my dad in a lot of ways. Um, and so for me, it was just like, well, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by by all these different things, food, drink, etc. So it's totally natural for me to want to explore. And the things I liked when I was 23 are different than the things I like now. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, some of them, I still like some of the same things. And I've and some things I've liked and disliked and liked again and all that. And And that to me seems natural. But at the same time, you know, we don't have anything. There's no, there's no kind of cultural, there's no real kind of cultural pressure or there's some maybe, but not, and it's increasing, I think, but there isn't a longstanding kind of cultural pressure to be a a diverse, well-rounded drinker in the way that I think there is eating. Mm, Yeah. I, I hadn't really considered that, but I think that's a really good point. Like you can, I was um, having this conversation, I think, with a few of our uh, colleagues and about this idea that, um, you know, if you ask winemakers what kind of beer they like, they're always going to say like Miller High Life or something Mm. or, you know, some some straightforward macro beer because it's the most refreshing or whatever. It's the least fussy. And I think that's 
That's really interesting because when you think of winemakers and having these exquisite palettes or whatever, and they just like this very standard beer. And I think that's, that's really interesting because like, like you said, there is probably no pressure to have, yeah, an extensive drink, rain, drinks palette or um, range of drinks experience. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, you think about this, like, and maybe this is a good uh, lens, right? I think if you or I, and again, I mean, this is going to be a little bit, uh, to our generation and younger, possibly more so. But like, mm-hmm. I, I think about this, right? Like, I don't know the question. Something I talk about with my wife sometimes is like, I, Joanna, do you know, do you remember when, like the first time you tried sushi? Mm-hmm. When was that? I, I think I was like, uh, like a very young person. We, we got sushi from like a local very, grocery store. Yeah. Like maybe okay. 10 or so. Yeah. I was definitely older. I was in high school, but mm-hmm. still like, I think, you know, I, people of our generation and certainly younger, most of most people, especially you know, in a lot of the country, are encountering something like sushi relatively young. Mm-hmm. I mean, my son has had, who's three, has had right. sushi since he was a one year old. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately for us, it's like his favorite food. Oh. I mean, we love it. It's just not cheap to feed a, a three year old endless amounts of uh, salmon sashimi that he seems to want. But and for like our parents' generation, I mean, depending on who your parents are, and of course their background and life experience. But like, I don't know when my parents first tried sushi. I don't think either of them really eats it. I mean, certainly not a lot of raw fish. Mm-hmm. And that's to say nothing, you know, they're relatively, well, some of the, my dad's more adventurous than my mom, but whatever, not really the point here. Point is like, yet, yet, I think you could go to a lot of people of our generation and ask, like, you know, we could run down a list of classic cocktails and mm-hmm. say like, well, who here has tried a Sazerac? Who here has tried a, you know, a Clover Club, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we don't have to run through a list of them. But like, <laughs> I think that, that we don't have, or, you know, who's tried uh Chenin Blanc or, or, or who's had a, uh, a Doppelbach or whatever, you know, pick your, pick your thing. Mm-hmm. And some people may have had all those things. Some people may have had none of those things, but we don't sort of, I think we put a lot of cultural value these days, most of us on being a well-rounded mm-hmm. adventurous eater who's tried lots of different things. I mean, shit, sometimes I, there's, there's dishes and cuisines that now are discussed kind of without any explanation that I am like, wait, what? <laughs> like, I don't know that thing at all. I have to look it up, which is fine. I mean, that's how one learns. But um, but with drinks, it's still, I think, you know, people feel totally comfortable being like, you know, asking like, what do you drink? They're like, oh, I just drink, you know, yeah, I just drink rosé or I just drink uh, Aperol spritzes or I just drink, you know, martinis or whatever the thing is, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so this does come back to this whole topic that I think we've been kind of trying to define in our own minds, which is like, you know, how how do you become a more well-rounded drinker? Mm. And and is that actually a thing worth doing? Right. Is there value in that? Yeah. Because I think we would, I mean, certainly a drinks podcast and right. publication <laughs> would sort of say, yes, please read more of our content, um, listen to more of our podcasts about all these topics. But it is also true that like many people just kind of find a thing they like and stick with it. I mean, again, I think one of the, this, this is just, resonate with me now like i think this explains a lot of why hard seltzer has been such a big hit right like it's a thing you can drink if you want to drink in almost any setting now Mm -hmm. yeah i was actually going like just to your point about food and how it seems like with every generation they're you know in your family in particular is you know better rounded like your son is eating sushi already i wonder if the same thing will happen with drinks like will younger generations have more exposure to and find more value in being well-rounded drinkers or where will it just be hard seltzer and other things like that? 
Yeah, that's a fascinating question. I would love if if any of our listeners who are Gen Z or, or newer drinkers, if if because again, I think like I even think about it in my cohort. You know, I'm 37, and I was have been and was for a long time. Like I was kind of out on the right edge of the bell curve for adventurousness with food for among my friends mm-hmm. and with and in sort of. I mean, obviously, I'm a professional, so my drinks experience is pretty broad compared to most people that I know who are outside of the industry, but. I do think that there you are seeing I am seeing I think we are seeing that that is expanding into the drinks world this valuing of a breadth of experience and and mm-hmm. of you know if not expertise then then at least some familiarity with all these things but but of course acquiring you know that kind of familiarity is complex and complicated you have to know where to go or you have to kind of you know be you know, frankly, raised in a family that values that kind of thing, as was tr- as is true with food in a lot of ways. You know, we don't have a lot of control over who our parents are and what they feed us when we're young. And so I don't know. And I, there's access I just, too, right? Yeah. And, and of course, and that's a huge piece of this too. You know, drinking is not cheap for the most part. Mm-hmm. And certainly the kind of things we're talking about definitely are, you know, can be expensive or, or sort of difficult to to access Mm -hmm. even if they're not yeah even if they're not crazy expensive but okay so so we started almost uh you know (laughs) when we did this episode we started by talking about how you know there's these categories we're talking about what we've been drinking lately that we don't haven't dove that far into so i want to i want to leave it here Mm -hmm. joanna with this which is like okay in the interest of becoming even more well-rounded drinkers Mm -hmm. what do you resolve to drink in the next week that we can talk about that'll be uh that'll push you outside your comfort zone a little bit oh wow i want to think about this um do you <laughs> on have the spot do you we did not rehearse this. on the spot um <laughs> well okay i i really want to make well i want to try your riff on a paper plane of course but i really okay. want to make a daiquiri at home because ah. all this talk about daiquiris and i actually have never i don't think i've ever ordered one out at a bar Mm. Um, and I've certainly not made one at home, so I will cer- definitely do that in the next week. I don't know if it's a- as adventurous. <laughs> as, um... <laughs> well, it's at least expanding the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the experience. Yeah. What about you? Well, it's funny, you know, I was thinking about this in the sense of you were, you were talking about not caring much for IPAs. Mm-hmm. And I think I have generally kind of, I, I too have found some of the, uh, like the hazies to be a little more approachable. And I was like, you know, I should go get like, I'm going to find, you know, I'm here in, in Seattle, one of the places where, uh, you know, the kind of West coast IPA is really, uh, it's still a strong trend. Mm-hmm. Um, although there are lots of hazies and I was like, I need to go get just like a very classic bitter without a lot of, uh, <laughs> softening <laughs> from, <laughs> from additional hops and things like that IPA and just be like, you know, this is what I started out drinking a lot of when I was drinking beer and then I really moved away from it. And it's like, I need to come back and revisit. Cause I've sort of just avoided them because mm-hmm. I don't think I care much for them, but, but you know, it's like, like everything, it's good to revisit from time to time and touch in on our own sense of tastes and how they might've adjusted. And now that I'm a, like, you know, 37 year old father of almost two, like I, maybe I really do like classic West coast IPAs and I can just like embrace it. I don't know. <laughs> I will, uh, I will report back, uh, next week and and joanna thank you this was fun we yes. we got to have a little bit of i feel like it was maybe a little more subdued podcast without adam <laughs> uh, you all can let us know podcast at fine and of course share your thoughts on this topic and any other 
comments or suggestions you have for us. But, you know, it was, it was just, it was a little more, a little more chill. It's <laughs> cool. And uh, I will talk to you and Adam next week. Yes, yeah, sounds good. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, Vine Pair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the Vine Pair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.